All right, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 24, Exodus chapter 24 this morning, making our way through this book. Spent a few weeks in the Ten Commandments. Last week we looked at all the different laws that come after the Ten Commandments and what in the world they have to do with us today. Uh, and, uh, and looked at some kind of weird stuff. It's like, what is that doing there? What are, what are you supposed to do with that kind of stuff? And then today we're going to look at something that, on first glance, if you're not familiar with what's happening, you're going to say, hey, what does that have to do with us today? Because that's kind of weird too. Um, but it has everything to do with us today. Sometimes whenever I preach a sermon, I can't decide what the title is going to be of that sermon uh, until, uh, honestly, till I, I put the podcast up on, on Mondays or uh, until at least after the sermon is preached. It just kind of flows out of whatever gets, whatever gets said. But sometimes I know uh, exactly what the title of the sermon needs to be, and this morning that kind of fits the bill, and that is The Blessing of Repetition. The Blessing of Repetition is the title for the message this morning. And what we're going to do is we're going to go through chapter 24, really the end of chapter 23, and then uh, all of chapter 24. And what I want to do is I just want to read through it, kind of offer a little bit of commentary about what's going on, kind of set the stage for what is happening, explain the scene that we see, uh, and then I want to kind of draw out some applications for us that really flow from the rest of of scripture. So we're going to start here uh, at the beginning of Exodus 23 and verse 31. I'm going to read commentary, read commentaries, kind of how this is going to go for the next couple of minutes. So what I need you to do is for you to kind of lock in here because the, the, the setting is going to help us for the rest of the message, right? The, the setting is going to help us for the rest of what we talk about this morning. And there's going to be some big theological concepts we're going to talk about here, which I know for some of you is like, oh no, that sounds boring. But I promise you, if you hang with me, you're going to see tremendous blessing in what it is that we're going to be looking at this morning. So Exodus chapter 23, verse 31 says, and I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Euphrates for I will uh, into the wilderness from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. That's important. They will not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. So by way of introduction, what we're about to read, God has handed down the law of Moses. This is what we've seen the last few weeks between the Ten Commandments and the laws that follow. He's handed down the law to Moses, and we saw all this kind of get, get laid out there. He's put out what he expects of them. He's put out how he expects them to, to operate with one another, kind of a, a civil code that he's put together for them. He's put together the, the moral imperatives and the, the, the all-time imperatives that we see there in the Ten Commandments, and he's, he's uh, effectively put down the, the groundwork for what we know as the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant. He's laid out the groundwork for that. And what we're about to read is the ratifying of that covenant. So this is kind of like, you know, whenever you got to buy a house, you got to buy a car, two parties got to come together, and then you got to sign for like 45 minutes, right? If you've bought a house, you know what I'm talking about. You just got to sign, you got to sign, you got to sign, you got to sign, and you're committing all these things whenever you do that. It's a bad analogy. Some of you are already like, I don't think it really is like that. Just hang with me. We'll, we'll explain it a little bit more. But, but for now, this is what you need to, to just kind of grasp. This is two parties coming together, God and then Moses, the elders of Israel representing the nation of Israel, coming together and they're saying, all right, this covenant, we're going to do it. We sign on the dotted line. God's laid down the framework and now we're going to see the ratifying 
of that covenant. So let's read. I'm going to read 1 through 11 here. So Exodus 24, 1 through 11. Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but the others shall not come near, and the people shall not come up with them. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. So you see that the people of Israel, they're saying, yes, everything you laid out for us, all those rules that we read last week, all those things that we considered here in the previous chapters of of, of Exodus 20, 21, 22, 23, all of those things, we'll do them, we sign on the dotted line, verse 4. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half the blood and put it in the basins and half the blood he threw against the altar. And then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. We will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and he said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the seventy of the elders elders of Israel went up. And they saw the God of Israel. And there was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for, for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld... They beheld God, and they ate, and they drank. We'll stop right there. We can keep on reading the rest of it. You can, you can keep on scanning down the rest of it. It's more of this kind of scene as they eat together, and as Moses goes back up, and you see this same kind of language, the same thing repeated in different ways, and this is the ratifying of the covenant. So there's a few different things that you see here, and if you've been around Providence for a while, this is not the first time that we've talked about this idea of covenant, This is not the first time that we've kind of gone over this. We're going to go over it a little bit more this morning. But what you see in the scene is is different things between the animals being slaughtered, the blood being sprinkled over the people, the people being covered in the blood, them ratifying it by saying, we agree to the terms, we will do it, we will do everything that you've said, God. It's this grand kind of ceremony that's happening. It's this very big thing, very big picture, and and they are affirming, yes, this is what we are going to do to do. So by way of review, let's remember how this works. So I said it's kind of like buying a car, buying a house, but really there's a lot more to it uh, than that. This is a very specific type of covenant that God uses in Israel's history. This isn't so much a contract between two parties as it is a covenant. And we'll talk a little bit about how that differs here in just a second. Because the way this covenant, covenant works is, unlike an agreement or a contract that you might enter into with a bank or with someone else whenever you're selling something and you both kind of sign the dotted lines, this one is a little bit different. Because when you sign a contract, both parties are, legally speaking, equal. Both parties are, legally speaking, both bound to that contract in the same way. But this is different because God comes to Israel and He never comes to Israel as their equal. He is not saying, here's my proposal, and Israel saying, well, let me negotiate that proposal. We'll agree on something. We'll shake hands. You get what you want. I get what, what we want. And then you move on from there. God does not do that. He never comes and says, you do this and I'll do that. At least not 
At least not all he says to them. Instead, it gets framed a little bit differently. God instead comes to them and says, I'm your king. I'm your deliverer. Remember, they're removed from Egypt now. He has been the one that has set them free. He's been their protector. He's been the one that's gone before them. He's been their defender. And he has been their liberator. And he is their king. And he says, I'm your king. And I'm the one that you owe full allegiance to. And because I'm nice, and because I am good, and because I am powerful, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay out for you all of these rules. And all of these rules are the stipulations to our agreement. If you do them, you will receive the blessing and the protection that go along with them. But if you do not, then I am not obligated to care for you, and this agreement is now null and void. So this is the way that God comes to me. He says, I am your king. Here's what I'm going to provide. These are the terms. Take it or leave it. Here's the terms of the covenant. And Israel quickly says, whatever you say, God, we'll do it. You delivered us. We know how powerful you are. We know how quickly you have destroyed the, the, the idols of Egypt. Whatever you say, whatever rules you put out there, we will do it. We will be obedient. You say, now why is this important for us to know? Why do we need to know about a covenant, about this kind of legal, pseudo-legal agreement between Israel and between God? And it's important because this idea, this idea of covenant is the backbone of the Bible. If you do not understand the idea of covenant, you cannot understand the Bible. The entire biblical story is built around this idea of of covenant. It is the thread that holds the whole story together. Perhaps you've never thought of the Bible quite like that. Perhaps you've never thought of it in that way. Maybe you thought of it as a bunch of kind of individual stories and individual heroes and you've studied the Old Testament in, in these different segments and you, 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 know about, you know about David and you know about how he killed Goliath and you know about Adam and Eve and you know maybe a little bit about Joseph and, and you've heard the stories here and the stories there and, and you kind of know the heroes of the Bible but you had no idea that, that really those heroes were weaving together a story. And that story is built around covenant. Maybe you just thought that the Bible was telling a, a history, maybe a history of Israel, a history of the Jews. Maybe it kind of transitions a little bit to the history of the Christians in the New Testament, but, but really that's all that, it, that, that it's doing. And what I want you to see is that in the Old Testament, there's something else being woven together throughout all of the Old Testament. In a very real sense, what you read in the Old Testament is not a history of Israel because there are huge chunks that we know nothing about. Right? We talked about this at the beginning of Exodus. There's almost 400 years that are completely unaccounted for. All we know is that they ended up in slavery, but we don't really know exactly how that happened. or If it's a history of Israel, it's a very incomplete one. There are huge gaps of time that we don't understand exactly what happened, and we can make assumptions, but we don't know because... The purpose of the Old Testament is not to tell the history of Israel so much as it is to tell the history of the covenant. And that's what the Bible is. It's the tracing of the covenant that God makes with His people from the, the, the time past with Abraham, as we'll see here in a minute, all the way to the future and into the New Testament, the future from where we are here uh, in the New Testament. And I'll try to show you what I, what I mean. Have you guys ever watched one movie 
over and over and over. Like maybe you've got a favorite that you've seen so many times, you could probably quote most of it back to me right now without even, without even thinking about any of it. You could just start rattling off lines to me. I've got a few of those. Field of Dreams would fit that bill for me. Rudy would probably fit that bill. Probably any of the Dark Knight trilogy would fit that bill. Those all are kind of part of, of things for me. So... Uh, <clears throat> I wonder, do you have any of, of those type of things where you could just start giving a scene-by-scene analysis uh, of the movie because you've seen it so many times? One of the things that happens whenever you have kids is that inevitably your kids will latch on to a movie and you will be forced against your will to watch that movie so much that you can quote it too. This has happened with a couple of different movies in our family. One was, uh, I think it was about six or seven years ago, I'm not really sure, six or seven years ago, maybe eight years ago, uh, was for Isaiah, and it was the Polar Express. Have any of y'all ever gotten on the Polar Express on repeat train? Yeah, there's a few of you guys that have done that. That is a rough one, right? By the time Christmas was over, I thought, thank goodness, I'm so ready for Christmas to be over so I can be done watching this darn movie. And then it kept going because he would not stop watching it. Somewhere around March, I was like, we're done. We're done. It's spring break. It's getting warm outside. There's leaves on the trees. We're not watching this anymore. The rule in this house is if you're going to do Christmas movies, you've got to start on November 1st and you finish by December 31st. Hard stop. And that rule was instituted just so we could stop the Polar Express because I think it would still be on repeat if we didn't. Now, Abby, when she was younger, uh, she picked a little bit of a different movie. Uh, We've got some videos. I couldn't find all the videos. I couldn't get them to to work just like. But when she was barely able to talk, we have movies of her singing the words to A Spoonful of Sugar from Mary Poppins. Uh, We kind of helped her in that direction because we knew, even though we couldn't prevent it with Isaiah, that there's movies you can get stuck on repeat that are terrible. At least Mary Poppins is a pretty good movie. We knew if we were going to be watching one a lot, that one one was a pretty pretty good one. That was uh, an acceptable choice. And we have probably seen that movie in our house hundreds of times. I, I mean, I don't think I'm exaggerating to say that hundreds of times. It was pretty much always on when Abby was in that two to three to four year old range. Our whole family knows Mary Poppins well. Now here's the thing, no matter how much you enjoy something, you can reach a point where it's like, okay, that's enough. I, we've, we've, we've got, you may not hate it, but you just realize, all right, that's served its purpose. That's really just enough. Uh, and we hit that stage with Mary Poppins, and we just blew right on by it. We just kept on, we kept on going. It did not stop. It just kind of became the soundtrack of our house. And somewhere in there, it kind of became part of our family. So let me show you what, what, what I mean here. I've got a couple of pictures that will prove it. So this is uh, Emily and I at Disney World for a Halloween party deal. Um, You can see she was into it a little more than I was. Um, That dress has gotten worn a lot for this costume. But uh, So you can can see us there at at Disney World. Uh, And then uh, this is when Abby was five. We drove her to Louisville to see the Mary Poppins musical because it was her favorite. So we went and we saw that. And then this is a few years later when Mary Poppins' musical was at Walter State, and Encore did it, so we saw it there. 
And then uh, this is whenever the, um, the, the most recent Mary Poppins just came out last year. We all went to the family to see that. If you can't tell, we have shirts on that, that quote the movie. Um, Emily's, of course, says practically perfect in every way. She would have it no other way than for it to say that. So uh, then there's that. And then this uh, is the one that maybe some of you guys have seen. Um, this is us all full dressed up uh, and, and uh, photoshopped and everything else. And I realize some of you guys may be judging me right now because this is happening. <laughs> this was for hockey tickets, okay? So it's got to balance out somewhere in there, right? Like this was to win hockey tickets, which we did win. Got me on the ice to try to win a trip to Disney World, which I failed miserably at. But it got us some, uh, it got us some hockey tickets. So as you can see, this is kind of part of who we are as a family, right? It's kind of worked itself. It, it just became us. There's something about the repetition of it that made it work itself into our bones. This is the way repetition works. I've told you before, I had a professor in, in seminary that said that repetition is the mother of all learning. And he repeated that so many times that now I repeat it to you. That's how that works. It's the one thing when you see something once. It's another thing when you hear it day in and day out. When you sing the songs, when you watch the movie, when you dress like the characters, when you quote the lines, when you see the musicals, it just becomes part of you, even when you don't even realize that it's happening. This is, in maybe a bad analogy kind of way, this is how the covenants work in the Bible. I want to take just a couple of minutes to run through a couple of scriptures here, and I want to see you the repetitive nature in which God does the, or acts out the covenants and, and comes to us and ratifies covenants with us and with the nation of Israel. So hang with me here, but we're going to go through a few different texts in Genesis and throughout the Old Testament and eventually get to the New Testament that will prove, I hope, my point. So Genesis chapter 9, you can turn if you want to all of these, but we'll be going through them pretty quick. Genesis chapter 9, verse 8. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, for it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Now, a lot of you may know about this covenant because of the rainbow. This is known as the Noahic covenant. And it's the first place that the covenant is explicitly mentioned for God's people. We could go back and we could talk about some covenant language that happens in the, in the creation and in the fall and around that. But here's where it's first explicitly mentioned. And God promises not to flood the earth. Even if the earth were worthy of being flooded and being wiped out, He will not flood it again in the same way. Fast forward uh, a few, uh, several, several years, but just a couple of chapters to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. 
and you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now in a very real sense this is where so much of the Bible begins. This is where God comes to Abram out of nowhere. Abram wasn't seeking God. Abram wasn't looking for God. God comes to him and says, I'm going to do something in you, Abram. Later becomes Abraham. I'm going to do something in you, Abraham. I'm going to do this. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to give you a great land. And this is a picture of covenant. The rest of the Bible is, in many ways, just explaining how this happens. The rest of the Bible is in a very real way explaining how God is good to Abraham, how God blesses Abraham through him and through his seed. That's what, most of the, or that's what the rest of the Bible is in some way. This is known as the Abrahamic covenant. So you fast forward a few chapters and this covenant is expanded a little bit and reaffirmed by God. So Genesis chapter 15, move forward just a few. Genesis chapter 15, verse 5. And he brought him outside and he said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out, of the, out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. From there you could keep reading, and what you would see is a ceremony carried out very reminiscent of the one we read in Exodus 24 just a few minutes ago. He goes on to carry this out, and what God does there is he ratifies this covenant with Abraham. But in this ceremony, he, he effectively signs the ceremony, ratifies it himself, binds himself to the covenant while Abraham is asleep. And so Abraham doesn't complete the same process. He's asleep the whole time. And in fact, God is saying that his faithfulness to this covenant is unconditional upon Abraham's ability to keep it. It is wholly dependent upon God to keep this covenant. We could read again in Genesis chapter 17 where this, this promise, this covenant is reaffirmed there. Instead, I want us to move uh, much further along in the story to 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. One that we've said before and here some consider to be the most important chapter in all of Scripture. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Verse 8, now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, so this is God speaking to the prophet Nathan, who is now going to be speaking to David, and this is the message he will give him. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you would be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed, disturbed no more. And violent men shall not afflict them no more as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom." And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. 
So we move forward in Israel's history, and we've seen the Noahic and the Abrahamic covenant. We saw the Mosaic covenant. That's where we started in Exodus 24. And now we see the Davidic covenant. God comes to David and tells David, I know you want to build me a temple, but instead I want to make, I want to make your lineage into the house of David. And from that lineage will be a king that will not be rivaled by any other king. And in this, God establishes yet another covenant with his people. One covenant does not replace the other. Simply because the, the, the Mosaic covenant comes into effect does not mean that the Abrahamic covenant is gone. One builds on the one for it. And each time we see that God is the initiator of the covenant. He comes to Noah. He comes to Abraham. He comes to Moses. He comes to David. And he says, this is the covenant that I will establish with you. They did not ask for it. God came and he gave it to them. The repetition of the covenants and the pattern of the covenants begins to work itself into our hearts, into our minds as we read throughout the Old Testament. These are the explicit passages in which God says, here's what the covenant is, where God initiates, where God gives the terms, where God maintains his sovereign control over the fulfillment of those terms. And just like the waves on the beach, it just kind of keeps crashing down, the repetition of the covenants being talked about. If you read elsewhere in the Old Testament, you see that the writers in the Old Testament kept coming back to the covenants. Later in Exodus, we will see here in just a few weeks in Exodus chapter 32 that Moses saves all of Israel whenever God was furious with them for their complaining and their ungrateful hearts. In Exodus 32 verse 13, Moses says to God, he says, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. So Moses comes to God and he says, God, don't destroy Israel. You have made this covenant. I plead with you to hold tight to this covenant. I know that they've not been obedient to those terms, but I plead with you, hold to the promise that you have made. And God does. He, he appeals to the covenant. In Psalm 74, the psalmist says, O oh God, why do you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, which you have redeemed to be the tribe of your heritage. Remember Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. So he says, remember what you've done, God. Remember the covenant you've made. Remember how you purchased us and how you ratified this covenant with us. Don't give up on us. Remember the promise, God. In Psalm 105, verse 39, it says, He spread a cloud for a covering and a fire to give light by night. They asked, and He brought quail, and He gave them bread from heaven in abundance. We've seen this in Exodus. He opened the rock, and the water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river, for He remembered His holy promise and Abraham, His servant. We could go on and on and on looking at the exhortations that are in Scripture throughout the Bible, urging us to remember and God to remember the, the covenant that He has made. When you read the prophets, they are continually taking Israel back to the covenants and saying, remember your God. Don't chase after these other gods. Remember your God. And then elsewhere in the prophets, what you see 
It's what we see in Jeremiah chapter 31. And instead of looking back to the covenant, they're looking forward to a new covenant. This is Jeremiah 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke. So you remember where they said, whatever you say, God will do it. We will be obedient. And then what we're going to see is that the rest of the book of Exodus, much of the book of Numbers, a lot of the book of Deuteronomy is going to be all the ways in which they broke it. We won't, we won't do any of this. We promise to be obedient. Followed by chapters of them being completely disobedient to this covenant. It says, My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. So Jeremiah tells us that God is not done making covenants with his people. There is another covenant that is to come. He will make a new covenant. And this covenant will not be like the others. It will not be based on our ability to obey it and to hold it, like the Mosaic covenant is. We understand how that works. God gives us laws, expects us to obey them. We cannot do it. But God still remains faithful to his people. But how can he do that? How can he make a covenant? How can he have a contract with his people and say, if you do these things, I will remain faithful. And then they fail at those things, and he still remains faithful. If God is going to do that, then we have a massive problem, because that's not a just God. If he's going to lay out rules and say, you have to follow them, and then they don't follow them, but he stays there, we have a big problem. And this is the riddle of the Old Testament. All of the covenant makers in the Old Testament can't live up to the rules of the covenant. By definition, those covenants should be null and void. But God doesn't do that. He remains faithful. How, when obedience is required to maintain the covenant, how can God overlook the lack of obedience? More to the point, how can He overlook that failure altogether? Can He just look the other way? Can he just say that sin's not that big a deal? I'm just going to be nice here? No, he simply cannot do that. There is no justice for the lawbreakers if there is no consequences. How can he remain faithful unless the disobedience is removed so that the covenants are not negated? And what the overwhelming testimony of Scripture tells us is that there is one way God can do this. He must both be the covenant maker and as, as if that is not grace enough that He would offer us this covenant, He will also be the covenant keeper. Where Adam, Abraham, Noah, Moses, Israel, David, us, where we have all failed, God would not. He would be the keeper of the covenant. This is the blessing of repetition in the Bible. 
We are constantly pressed to look and to remember the covenant. Constantly throughout the Scriptures. So much so it becomes a part of us. It becomes a part of our story. It becomes a part of the story of Scripture. And the more it is repeated in your head, the more you begin to see it everywhere in the Bible. And the more you begin to tie these kind of odd sections of Scripture together. You remember at the end of Exodus 24 what we read there in verse 11. It talks about how they sat down together and they ate and they drank. They had a meal to ratify the covenant. Well, then you fast forward to the New Testament and you see the culmination of all of these covenants in the new covenant. And you see the covenant maker and the covenant keeper all there in one scene. Luke chapter 22, verse 19, Jesus said... Jesus is there for the Last Supper. And it says, He took the bread, and when He had given thanks, He broke it, and He gave it to them, saying, This is My body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in My blood. Do you remember the sprinkling of the blood in Exodus 24, how it covered the people? And now you have Jesus coming and saying, Here is the new covenant. And this covenant will be ratified and it will be kept because I will keep it and I will cover you in my blood. And Jesus ratifies this covenant with the Father. This morning we will take part in that same remembering. We will too experience the repetition of the covenants. We will drink the cup. We will eat the bread of the new covenant. If you're a Christian... We'll invite you to partake here in just a few minutes. If you are a a part of that new covenant which you enter to by faith in Christ, and if you have said, my faith is in Him, I trust in Him, not in my good works to obey the law and keep the covenant, but instead in what He's done to keep the covenant, we'll invite you to come and to take these elements and to remember and to rehearse the scenes, the repetition over and over and over. And as we have seen, and will continue to see all throughout the book of Exodus and throughout the Bible, God's people are a forgetful people. We are prone to forget this story so quickly. We are distracted by so many things. We are distracted by things like jobs and school, by kids and spouses, by suffering and by entertainment, by money and food, by anger and impatience, by pride and by ego. We are distracted by so many things. But this is what is so beautiful about the blessing of repetition. We need to hear the story of the gospel over and over and over again. We need to be reminded about this new covenant that he has established with us. We need to be told about this over and over and over again. This is why gospel-centered friendships are so important. Because you can send texts and phone calls and emails and uh, cups of, you know, sitting together with cups of coffee. And you can have parenting conversations and you can talk about all the different things in life and all of those things can bring us back to the gospel whenever we continue to remind one another of the beautiful truth of what Christ has done. This is why it's so important to love your spouse, how God has laid it out for us. 
Husband, it is a rehearsal of the gospel when you die to yourself in order to love your wife. Wife, it is a rehearsal of the gospel when you let go of your self-focused desires in order to love your husband. And this is why we keep coming back to the scripture and reading the scriptures day after day after day to rehearse the scene, to remember, to get the repetition of the gospel. Do you know that's part of what God has built into our weeks too? We talked about this a little bit with the Sabbath a few weeks ago. But God has built, into, uh, built a, reputa- a repetition into our worship. Now we worship every day, but gathered worship on Sunday mornings is always a rehearsing and a remembering of this covenant. We do not just gather together in order to sing songs, in order to hear a little bit, get a little bit smarter, and move on, in order to check our box and say, God, aren't you happy with me? I kept your law this week. No, we gather together to remember the covenant. And just like that movie you've watched a thousand times, like that theme song that you know so well, the more you do it, the more you sing those songs, the more you quote the lines, the more you rehearse the scenes, the more it just gets into your bones. This is why regular attendance at church is so important. To make church optional or sporadic is to miss out on one of the chief ways that God has given us to know His grace and the gospel. Something as simple as regularly coming to church is in part how we know God's blessings. Even when you feel like you're getting nothing out of it, while you aren't looking, the Spirit is working those words, those songs, those scenes into your heart. And before you know it, it's part of you. And so this morning, we rehearse and we remember one of those scenes through the Lord's Supper. Maybe the chief scene in the New Testament where God says, this is the new covenant. And this is why we do this. This is why we take the Lord's Supper. Now this morning, this is for those that are, as I said a few minutes ago, those that have have taken hold of that covenant through faith in Christ. If that's not you, I urge you this morning, don't miss out on that blessing. Don't be like those that have said, no God, I see that covenant that you have made, but I don't want to be a part of that. I urge you to look to the covenant maker. And that even though you have been disobedient, even though you have removed yourself from that covenant, that you would accept the invitation by faith to come back into that covenant with Christ. This morning I would encourage you maybe for the first time, to understand what it means to follow Christ under His blood. To see God, as it says in Exodus 24, through these covenants. Will you pray with me? Father, this morning we, we are thankful for Your grace to us. That not only are You gracious enough to offer us a covenant, that you knew from the beginning that we could never live up to the terms of that covenant. And so your plan before the foundation of the world is that you would send your son to keep that covenant. Your grace to us as both covenant maker and covenant keeper, we cannot fully understand 
but we can worship and we can celebrate and we can remember and we can rehearse. Father, help us to do that well this morning.